was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to present the first part of my celebration of the 50th anniversary of Grease with the show's original director, Tom Moore. As one of Broadway's most successful directors, Tom Moore was Tony-nominated for his work on Night Mother, which he also spearheaded on screen, and Over Here. His other Broadway credits include Moon Over Buffalo, Once in a Lifetime, Frankenstein, Division Street, and the Octet Bridge Club. Off-Broadway, he directed Welcome to Andromeda. He has also been nominated for Emmys for his work on L.A. Law, ER, and Mad About You, and his other TV directing credits include 30-something, Sybil, Picket Fences, and Gilmore Girls. Tom is also the co-author, with Ken Weisman and Adrian Barbeau, of the recently released Grease, Tell Me More, Tell Me More, Stories from the Broadway Phenomenon That Started It All, available from Chicago Review Press, anywhere books are sold. So pause this episode, go buy that book, and now, without further ado, Tom Moore. Well, so I'd love to start um, at the beginning to ask, how did your interest in theater and in being a director first begin? You know, I always had an interest in theater when I was a kid. I mean, maybe it was an escape from uh, some tough times at home. Uh, maybe it was just uh, uh, exhibitionism and liking the attention I was getting. But I think one of my first thing was playing a, um, um, a Jack Frost in a Christmas pageant. And I remember it very clearly to this day. And uh, uh, I just always had an interest and I stayed interested and it's kind of how I found my identity in high school uh, was finding the theater and participating in that. Uh, but as I, as I went to college, I was going to be a lawyer uh, because I thought being, uh, uh, being in show business uh, is not really a, uh, a reputable idea for somebody that wants to have a good life, good career. Uh, and about halfway through college, I changed my mind and realized that uh, what I needed to do was uh, follow, follow my thoughts in theater. But I had no idea what it would end up doing. I just, I just followed my instincts, and that's what I kind of still do to this very day. And at that point when you were studying theater, were you studying acting or directing? Or uh, I was, you know, I was, I was studying directing at Yale. Uh, when I got into it as an undergraduate uh, at Purdue University, uh, it was uh, I was just I was just in it to learn what I could about the theater. So everybody acted a lot. I enjoyed it. Uh, I didn't find out until later that I'm really not a very good actor uh, because an actor has to reveal, and a director really controls. And I I don't reveal. Um, you know, all the great actors can can go to the very innermost core, even if they're doing, even if it's comedy, it still depends on their, their being open and vulnerable. And that's not something I could do well. So I was what, what I called a performing actor. So I was quite good at 
before I knew I wasn't a good actor, simply because I could perform well. But once I knew what it took, I just couldn't wait to never act again. Uh, and I remember being in summer stock and uh, thinking, this audience hates me and I hate them and I'm not doing this anymore. And I think that was the last time I ever acted. And so what was your training like at Yale? And did you have any specific mentors or teachers who helped you especially? I did. Uh, uh, and I always like the chance to talk about my mentors because I think for all of us, they're, they're so crucial to our development. Uh, uh, with Yale, when I came into Yale, um, this is a while back now, uh, but when I came to Yale, any major drama school or any major school has its ups and downs, depending on the faculty. And this was one of its lower ebbs. Uh, and I think to some extent, that's why I got in. But uh, nevertheless, I was in. And then the famous, um, uh, the famous critic took over Yale the next year. It was a, it was a big thing. Um, the president of Yale, uh, uh, Brewster, hired him to come in and totally shake up and reform the school. And he did that in a big way. And during my second two years at Yale, everybody wanted to be a part of it. So we were getting people coming in from New York. We were getting people coming in from all over the world to participate in our training. But the, the, the two, two director uh, uh, mentors that I particularly like to remember, one's Nico Sakharopoulos, um, who, who was a remarkable teacher in that, in that he could, he could critique a scene based on what you were trying to do, not on what he would do. Most of us, when we critique, it's just, well, this is what I would do. And he was somehow able to see where you were going and where you were failing on that uh, or succeeding as the case might be. Brewstein was certainly a great mentor. And then another, um, um, uh, another mentor in the directing field was Gordon Rogoff. Um, yeah, so that's so I, I loved my time at Yale. I had a great time. I mean, well, I had a great time the second two years. My first year, I was just trying to find out who I was. Uh, because most, uh, a lot of people, I mean, things have changed now because you can't get into Yale unless you're already an established director. But I really, I had only directed one 10 minute play at Purdue University. And uh, I got in basically on recommendations. And and I learned to be a director at Yale, which was what was so thrilling. And I just remember in the beginning, I was, I was imitating what I had seen other people do. And then somewhere in the middle of the first year, I realized that I need to develop my own, uh, my own work and my own style and my own instincts. And it was, it was revelatory. I mean, it's what a drama school should do, I think. I, I think in some ways it's unfortunate that the drama schools have, many of them have become more conservatories for people who have already established themselves as directors. And for instance, at Yale, this is, <laughs> this is just something I obviously uh, have a, a stake in the game in, but I, when, when I was in school at Yale, they took in, I'm not saying this is a perfect way, but they took in 16 directors and knew it was gonna winnow down to five by the third year, it's a three year master's program. And it did because some people switched curriculum, some people became actors, some people left, and then some people were asked to leave. And it always ended up to five or six. And now they only take in three. Oh. Um, and so 
you don't know what a director is going to be. Those three years are crucial in development. And I just don't think you know how they're going to turn out or what they're going to develop and, and produce. And, and an awful lot of good people came out of the system when it was uh, letting directors fend for themselves and finding their way. Uh, anyway, they're good years and I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to them. Um, so. And you were saying that you were developing your own style during this time at Yale. And so how would you sort of define your own style of directing? Well, it's it's funny. I, I mean, I, well, it's not funny. It's it's actually, I mean, yes, it's funny because life is funny, but it's 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 just crucial how you uh, how you start looking at material. Uh, for instance, I didn't know I I'd been in a production of Three Penny Opera, Bertolt Brecht, but I didn't know anything really about the style of the work, and I didn't really understand it when I was acting in it. I mean, I was just a small small role. And uh, you know, I started looking that, and I loved the combination of music with serious statement, which is what he did. And so I did a couple of things like that. And I also, I also opened myself up to making some, some large choices, things that things that are very common now, but were unusual then. Uh, so that uh, I remember, I remember Nikos Sakharopoulos, who I mentioned. I remember him being. Uh, I always I knew at the beginning because you could tell what he thought he would he would keep note cards in the front and when you'd do a scene he would write a number down and you could you could see what it was I mean you couldn't see the number but could you could tell whether he was pleased or not pleased uh, at what uh, what you had done or whether he was impressed and I remember when I first did did uh, uh, a little piece uh, called a scene from a, a major play called Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Um, uh, that he all of a sudden he looked up and was just surprised, and I knew I had somehow passed over a goal, a goalpost in his mind, and uh, and from then on, then it just gave me the confidence to keep developing. So I think that's what I mean. It's 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 coming. It's coming to not try to copy people. It's coming to the point where you trust your instincts and you also take your chances. I mean, none of us want to fail, and I certainly didn't want to fail, and I still don't want to fail. But at the same time, if you're not taking some chances, you're not going to succeed or fail. You're just going to kind of hit a medium line, which I think all of us know is the most boring thing you can encounter in the theater. Uh, because, I mean, I don't mind seeing a perfectly dreadful production by a great director, because only the great directors can really fail on that colossal scale because they're willing to go there. Uh, whereas some, so many, I think artists sometimes, well, I say so many, I think some artists make a, uh, make a, make a through line and it, it doesn't allow for these highs and lows, you know, yeah. so, you know, but I often tell people, I, when I speak to students a lot and I, I often tell them, nobody knows what your career is until it's done. Somebody else will decide what your career was. You don't know what your career was. You're just <laughs> making decisions as you encounter them, and then uh, and then uh, and then you'll see what happens. And that's ultimately those decisions end up being a career. So somebody will write about it and say, "Oh, look, this is that career." Um, you know, I'm kind of at that point now because I've been at it for a long time. So. And so um, coming out of Yale, and did you always know that you wanted to come to New York or? 
I didn't really know. I didn't, Charles, I didn't really know what I was going to do uh, because I didn't really have. I didn't have a particular ambition. I certainly didn't have a master plan. I think I was more ambitious than I thought. But New York really was the only place to go uh, if you really wanted to develop and go to the next point. And one of the great things about they talk about the the Yale Mafia because there's so many people who graduated from the Yale Yale Drama School, Yale School of Drama, who will help you uh, if they can and who will certainly pay attention. It gives you a calling card. So yes, I went to New York, but, but before Greece happened, I did, uh, I, I, was, I think I graduated out of Yale around 25, because I, I got my master's degree. Um, and uh, I did a couple of shows in colleges. So I did one at State University of New York um, in Buffalo, and I did one at Brandeis University in Boston. And, uh, and then, uh, and then a very important moment in my career was I was I became the artistic director of a small but uh, but illustrious summer theater called Peterborough Players, which is supposedly the oldest continually operating theater in the United States uh, in summer theater, and um, and uh, that was an amazing chance to cast people. To, they encouraged me to do new things because they'd had a director who had been there many years, and so I did. So, uh, so, uh, so yeah. So, but look, New York is New York is where it all happens, really. I mean, you know, I love Los Angeles and I I love my life here, but New York is 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 and will always be, along with the West End and London, the uh, center of the theater. And it's something that anybody who wants to to really participate at the center of it, that's where they want to be. But so many of my so many of the things that happened to me in my early career was just luck. It's like that getting into Yale at that time when I probably couldn't have gotten in. I mean, I laugh telling the story that I only applied to three drama schools because uh, because I thought, well, if I don't get into any of these because they were the top ones at the time, then I guess I shouldn't do this. And so I applied to Yale, I applied to Carnegie Tech, which had a great program at the time. I understand they're back up now with a great program. And then Stanford was starting a new program um, um, for a master's degree. Um, they ended up, that never ended up going a great many places, but I got, I got an alternate acceptance at Stanford. I got turned down at Carnegie Tech and I got into Yale. So I got my first choice. So that was again, you know, just luck. And everything, everything so often depends on who, on who you've gotten to know, you know, where you've been at the right time to run into people, you know, conversations that you think will lead to nothing lead to something years later. I mean, you just never know. I mean, it's both the excitement of life, I think, and the scary part of life that we really don't know, you know, so. And so how did you um, begin? I, I believe one show you did at Yale was with a great director, Paul Sills, um, called Dynamite Tonight with Linda Lavin. Yes, thank you for bringing that up, actually, because nobody asked about that. Okay. Interesting. And I was, uh, I was the student stage manager. There was a, uh, this, was, this was the, 
the beginnings of the Yale Rep. It wasn't called that yet because it hadn't been established and it hadn't been approved by the university, but this was Brewstein's plan to always have a professional theater connected with, uh, with a learning university, which of course was a fabulous idea and still exists to this day, but that was Robert Brewstein's idea. And, um, and Dynamite Tonight was one of those first productions that they did where they would bring in professional actors from the outside and then some students would act in it as well. And then some students would do a number of the technical things. So, uh, so I was the student stage manager and Paul Sills, of course, was quite famous um, for, he hadn't done story theater at that point, but he was the son of Viola Spolin and, and coming out of Chicago, he was just incredibly well-respected. And this was a fantastic piece of theater. It still is. Um, written by Arnold Weinstein, and uh, that it it deals with war in the most outrageous, uh, silly ways. To some extent, it, it's not it's not unlike the outrageous way that oh what a lovely war deals with war, um, dealing with the First World War, which I did at State University of New York. But it was thrilling to be part of that production there at Yale and to watch that coming together and to watch a professional production and how it happened, because. It's, it's invaluable for students to be around professionals and see how it happens. And then I was lucky enough that uh, the professional stage manager who was permanent staff at Yale stayed at Yale. And then, then we, we took Dynamite, we took, they took, and I went with it uh, to, to New York, Dynamite Tonight, which uh, played a short run at the Martinique Theater, uh, Paul Libin producing. Um, the Martinique doesn't exist anymore. Uh, Paul Libin eventually became a major part of the Jamesen Theater organization. But anyway, it was just a, a thrilling, uh, I learned something. Uh, I learned something because you brought up dynamite. It's interesting because in that professional professional situation, it was, it was, they're always fraught. You never have enough money. You never have enough time. And uh, Paul had decided to change something major, uh, which was going to require a completely um, new lighting setup, uh, which is not surprising. I mean, now you just say, well, that's what it takes. So that's what we'll do. But I said, I said, Paul, you know, it's going to take an awful lot of time to, to do this. It, wouldn't it be possible to stage this over on the other side <laughs> where we already have things set up? And he just tore into me and just crushed me at the time. But of course, he was absolutely right. You can't say no to the creative idea. And if it takes extra work and it takes extra time to make something happen, then that's what it takes. So, um, so anyway, it was, I, that, again, a great learning situation and yeah. teaching me what happened in professional theater and both the similarities to the non-professional theater and the, uh, the major differences that exist too. And so you mentioned I'm giving a suggestion to Paul Sills as a stage manager. And so when you're a director of a production, who do you sort of accept suggestions from? On well, any good director, and I think it takes a while to get to where you can. Uh, if they're good suggestions, you take them from anybody who has them. Uh, I mean, I often laugh and say that, uh, you know, the director is going to get credit for anything that shows up on that stage. But if that comes from a crew person, or it comes from an actor or whatever, you take it. I, I hope, and I certainly got better at it as I had more experience, but I hope that I was always open to the creative, creative, creative collaboration 
uh, which is crucial. And and in terms of the big stuff, if you have if you have a wonderful producer, they're very much a part of it. Um, in terms of musicals, you and the choreographer become. I certainly was with Pat Birch. You become partners. Um, you really can do uh, do anything because you do them together. And uh, really, but wherever it came from. I mean, because everything changes and everything shifts and you don't know until you, all the work you do on your own, uh, getting prepared for production uh, means nothing to some extent once you get into the rehearsal hall, because it's all going to change. It's just all going to change. Uh, it even happens on film sets. You just don't have much time to rewrite and re-gear scenes, uh, but, uh, but you still have to be open to what happens. Uh, and I think that takes... I think that takes some experience because I think, I think directors, uh, well, at least I was, when you first start, you're a little more uptight about it because you, you're unsure of yourself. And so you want to make sure I need, we, we need to do this and we need to do this now. Well, you don't necessarily, but that's what you think you do. And later on, I think I became much more relaxed and, and open in the rehearsal period. I mean, there's a famous story about, uh, about I can't remember what it was, Peter Brook or Peter Hall in English theater, where he had done a, he had worked, he had worked months on a prompt book uh, with all the all the directions uh, written in about where everybody was going to move. It was a massive Shakespeare production, and uh, and and so he staged it exactly that. I mean, there were something like sixty actors on stage at the same time, and it was intricate staging and beautifully staged. But ultimately, when they first ran the scene. He just shut the prompt book and started again, because of course you're dealing with live people. You're dealing with characters that are now happening, and so that's what will determine a lot of that movement. Which, in your mind, I think you have to be prepared. I mean, I always say you have to be prepared as if, if the actors did nothing, that you would have a plan. That will never happen, of course. Uh, and so you know, you need to lead them in terms of a concept. But uh, but then you kind of have to find it together. And so in this um, in this great book about Greece that just came out that you were a co-author of, uh, one sort of common thing I noticed in the rehearsal section was that a lot of people saying that you sort of helped them find the direction for their characters. And so what is your process like of sort of thinking through that for yourself and then? Well, I think you instinctively, I mean, once you've done your preparation for a show, you you kind of you have a thought about what those characters are, but then they change based on who you cast. I mean, uh, all of those characters to some extent forever and ever are based on that original cast uh, because, uh, because they, they grow out of that. And in terms of helping them, a lot of times it's seeing, it's seeing where they're going and, and then trying to just kind of give it a little tilt in one direction or another or to encourage them sometimes. Um, to follow through in that thought. A lot of times to me, directing is, is more of this, less of that, you know, and, and it's never that obvious that you would say those words, but it's, it's to encourage them when they're going somewhere that makes sense and, uh, and, 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 that, and that makes it mean something or, or touch you or makes you, or it's funny. Uh, and then vice versa, if it starts to indulge itself uh, to, to try to cut it off at the pass. But the best way to do that is 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 generally because nobody wants to fail, <laughs> you know. Nobody's out there to do something stupid, including the director. 
So you just have to be open and trust each other so that you can uh, so that you can play around. And I think that was particularly special with that cast. It's been true with a lot of casts in my life. But when they're the most open uh, and the most willing to try, we just try anything. And all of a sudden something makes sense and it gets locked in. Doesn't get locked in because you say that's locked in, we're gonna do that. It gets locked in because that was obviously given who they are, given what the play is, given what the stage looks like, that is the obvious choice. And so that's what you go with. Yeah. And so this story is of course in the book, but how did you first get involved with Greece? Well, that's again, another thing about luck. And, uh, you know, I often, again, talking to students, I often say last man standing, uh, it's gonna be, you never know. I was the last person in my Purdue class, for instance, that anybody expected to do anything with theater. Because um, uh, I was late joining the theater. I didn't get into it until my junior year. I've been in the Purdue Glee Club. Uh, and, and in the book, and I mean, I can, I'll, I'll tell it briefly, but you, you know the, the book. I mean, it was remarkable in that I had worked with a playwright at Yale uh, and we had a play. I had done my thesis production actually that he had written. Um, and uh, we'd worked on that a long time, which we tried to get on in New York, by the way. Producers bought it and were trying to get it on. This was before Greece, but it just never, it never happened. Um, and then, uh, but with Greece, um, uh, way before Greece, this playwright and I wanted to do this production in New York, in New York of a play called Welcome to Andromeda. Uh, which was a two-character play about a quadriplegic and a nurse. So only one character moved, and uh, it was all in a, in a bedroom uh, because the hospital bed was set up in a bedroom and he wanted to die. It was a precursor in many ways to whose life is it anyway, but from my, from my feelings, a far superior play. Um, um, and we say we did the second production of this later on. Anyway, we we wanted to do it in New York, and a fantastic man of the theater named Wynne Hanman. They're just about to have a memorial service for him in New York, I think, this next week. But he offered us the American Place Theater for one day to do a, a workshop presentation uh, and invite whoever we wanted to invite, which is an amazing gift. I mean, to use the space. I mean, I can't remember what play was playing. Was it St. Clement's Church? but I can't remember what play was on the stage at the same time, but he allowed us to do this. And, and we invited everybody we could. And, and the good luck was that a friend of the playwrights saw a, an ad in Variety. Variety used to be printed at that point. Uh, and uh, the ad said, young producers seeking new material, uh, call us. So this young, uh, this friend of the playwrights called the playwright's agent happened to be my agent too, and said, uh, and said, they're interested, you should invite them. She called them up, she invited them, they came to see the production. They, uh, they liked the play very much, but they didn't feel it was commercial and didn't feel it was for them. But they were particularly impressed, uh, as they say, with my work. Um, and, uh, and we started talking then, and we had, I think, one other major conversation when uh, one of the producers came out, Ken Weisman came out to New York, I mean, came out to Los Angeles when I was working at the Mark Day Perform as Gordon Davidson's assistant uh, and on a, on a uh, I think it was a Rockefeller grant, but, but uh, we had lunch and had a great conversation. And then he went off 
I went off, nothing. And then I think a year and a half later, Ken and I are both a little confused on the time of this because it's, it's not totally clear. But about a year and a half later, as I see it, um, I got a call when I was had begun studying at American Film Institute and said, uh, we have this play we'd like you to consider. We'd like to fly you into New York. Uh, out of nowhere. I mean, truly out of nowhere. I mean, I remembered them very well and remembered our conversations, et cetera, but I had no idea. And I, I came in, I heard the score. Jim Jacobs played me that fabulous score on his guitar. I mean, I always treasured the fact I was one of the first people to ever hear that. Uh, but a lot of experienced directors didn't get didn't get the job, and I did. And uh, and again, it's a miracle because <laughs> I had never done a big musical. I'd done plays with music, as I told you at Yale, but I'd never done a musical. And this was a play with two people, only one of whom moved. So um, they just their instincts said I was the right guy, and they they were amazing. Uh, Ken and Maxine were amazing in trusting their instincts, and they went with it. And that's really how how my career took off, um, you know? Uh, I mean, could it, could it not happened at all? I mean, you know, but I had my first Broadway show at 28, um, you know, and then two years later, we did a second one called Over Here at 30. So, so it was an amazing, it was amazing burst into the New York scene um, um, doing that. But again, I hadn't planned on it. I hadn't even pushed for it, it just, fell into place and I followed my instincts and the chances that I got and took them. And that's where I ended up. But I'd be, I think you, you'll, you probably read in the story that I also tried to turn it down at first. I said, I don't know. And I mean, it's embarrassing to admit, but I thought that, I don't know. I just got out of Yale drama. I don't know that, I don't know that something called Greece is what I should make my New York debut with. And and then I got back on the plane and I said, I just, I just, I said, I love the score to the producers, but I said, I have a lot of doubts about the book because um, uh, it's just, it's just way too much of it and a lot of things. And I don't know that the characters are likable. And, uh, and then got on the plane and then on the way back, uh, which is a six hour flight because the tailwind's not being in your direction. And I had plenty of time to think, and there were no phones on planes at that time. And I went, oh my God, I've just turned down my chance to have a New York production. I mean, I had no idea it might be successful, but how crazy is this? So as soon as I got off the plane, I rushed to find a payphone, uh, which used to exist in those days, and, uh, and called them. And, and they flew me back in because uh, Warren had had some some doubts. It was easier to talk to Jim because he was so open and so uh, it was instant contact. Warren was shyer and uh, didn't speak much unless you addressed him. And so, um, so when I went back in, the focus was to to involve him more, and it all worked out. Learned. I mean, I learned a lot by you know when talking to Jim because I had not known some of the details. I didn't realize they on their own after Chicago had gone, had met a number of directors as well. In addition, this was before they even agreed to let Ken and Maxine, um, you know. And, you know, one of my favorite moments in the book for me is when I read Jim talking about the fact that they debated back and forth and back and forth whether I was the right guy. 
and then they were, um, uh, and they talked about some of the other people they had seen. There's a much more expanded version of that Michael Bennett story that we didn't have time to put in the book. And, but then he, he ends up saying that he turned to Warren, this is Jim Jacobs, and said, Warren, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the, the, the most obviously intuitive idea to hire two Jewish kids from Baltimore who had no real track record to produce this either. So, so we just got to stop fooling around, go with it. And so they went with me and it worked out really well. And, uh, and I'm great friends with Jim. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately Warren died very early, which is tragic because I mean, Greece has made, has, has provided such nice lives for so many. And it's a shame that Warren only got to experience that for a short time. So with being um, pretty, pretty young for a Broadway director to be doing a big musical at this time, and for that and some of the shows afterwards, did you ever find any issue or anything like that with that, that people had like less respect because of your age or anything like that? Or You know, I didn't. Now, maybe it's, maybe they did, <laughs> uh, but I didn't know about it. And, and so it, it didn't, uh, uh, with Greece, it was certainly no problem because we were all approximately the same in the same age range. But for the most part, and I have found this throughout my career, people always say, who was the, who was the most difficult one? I said, if they're talented, almost no one's difficult unless they're going through, unless they're going through some sort of self-doubt that you have to help them through. But, um, but, uh, but no, I never really did find that. I mean, Ken and I tell funny stories about one time we were in previews with Over Here. This was a show after Greece in, in Philadelphia. And uh, we were in our jeans and t-shirts. And uh, at that point, everybody dressed up for the theater. And the ushers weren't going to let us back into the theater when we'd gone out to the lobby <laughs> because they thought we weren't really connected to the show. So there were, there were many things like that. But I never felt lack of respect. And, and I worked with a lot of very experienced actors very quickly um, in those years. And I never felt that. You know, I find that, that creative people, they don't, they don't look at things like other people do necessarily in a hierarchy of age. They just, is this, is this the creative instinct or the creative impulse that will work for the show and for me or not? You know, um, and um, and I always appreciated that. But I also, I I think I had one of my gifts. I think was was a certain self confidence that simply didn't allow me to to even think about that. So I just plowed ahead. So they may have thought, "What is he doing here? Uh, he looks twelve. Uh, you know, because uh, I looked really young in those years." Uh, but it's. Um, but no, I never found that to be a real problem. Yeah. So what were some of the changes made to Greece during the process of trying at the Eden Theater? And oh, they were infinite. I mean, you know, you work so hard. I mean, the authors and I had worked for well over a month at night while we were auditioning, uh, revising the book so that it became 70%. It had started out as 70% book, 30% music. And the, the goal was to change that proportion so that it was 70% music, 30% book, which any, any good musical has to be, even if it's My Fair Lady, uh, you still have to cut all that Erdogan, you know, down. Um, and, uh, and so 
so that was that was one of the 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 major things that we started in with but then you work out god you work out to the nth degree the details of how you think it's going to be and what's going to work and then as soon as you put it on stage not in the rehearsal hall because pretty much in the rehearsal hall everything looked good as planned and the cast had a great time working on it and we we collaborated and it all happened but as soon as you get into the theater the stage is a very different animal uh, and uh, you're a different animal in it. And, and so we were constantly shifting. I mean, there were structural things right in the very beginning. There was a song that we, uh, um, that was hard for the authors to let go called Yuck. Um, and uh, I knew that had to go and we all knew that had to go, but it was hard for the authors to let it go. So we had to let it play to see what happened, but it just stopped the show. The show had kind of started out has that great opening number, Summer Nights, and uh, and then and takes off, and then uh, and then Yuck just kind of brought it all down big time. So we pulled the song up uh, from uh, the second act called Magic Changes. We pulled that up into the first act. Uh, it took off. We moved the orchestra pit. It had part of the concept of the show had been the orchestra pit on the. Uh, up above the stage in the back, uh, which a lot of, quite frankly, a lot of rock musicals were doing at the time, but it just, the actors and they were not connecting. So, uh, so it was moved down to the orchestra pit. Uh, there, was, uh, there was not enough attention to the major plot line. When, when Ken, when he first saw it in Chicago, the Danny and Sandy were just two of the group. They weren't the center of the show and as as tiny as our plot line is and it's tiny <laughs> but it all depends on that plot line and those two people i mean that's the glue that makes the whole show happen and so we added a scene for from for them in the middle of the second act because you had uh, i mean in the first act first act second act second act and then because you had uh, you had seen them and you'd seen the awkwardness when they first encounter each other where Danny's so surprised to see Sandy at Rydell High. And then you don't see him again until they were at the drive-in. Well, what got them back to the drive-in? I mean, so we had to put a scene in that shows them meeting and that in between. Those kind of things, they, you, you would think you'd see it on paper, but sometimes you just don't. And all of a sudden it's up there. And an audience tells you everything. Uh, I mean, they really do because they won't know what's wrong, but they'll know something's wrong. And you can just feel them sit back. You can just feel an audience. I don't care whether it's 50 people or, or a thousand, you can just feel them pull back when something's not working or not comfortable or not, or doesn't have momentum. I, I mean, a great deal of, of Greece was about giving it momentum because when you have something as slight in plot as Greece is, you don't want to let people think about it too long. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you just have to keep it in motion all the time. Um, and uh, and that one of those things we did there, that somebody helped us in seeing that, um, uh, was our scene changes were all beautifully blocked, but they were just staged scene changes. They happened in blue light. It was not a matter of hiding them, but the, the show always dipped. It didn't stop, but it always dipped the energy. And somebody said, why don't you keep the energy going? 
so that those kids are doing exactly what they're doing in the scenes, in the scene changes. So that's what we did. And all of a sudden people were riding in on pieces of scenery and stuff during the scene changes. And it made all the difference in the world, really. I mean, that sounds like, I mean, that's not even something that's on paper, but without that, it, it I don't know that it would have ever, ever finally coalesced into the show it did without that kind of momentum. Uh, but we also kept adding to the scenery uh, because it had been too spare and because we had had this documentary approach, which we stand by, um, um, which was full of all these, these photographs, but there weren't enough of them um, to really make the point and to make it seem fun. You know, so all of those things happened and it just kept going. I mean, I mean, you know, now when they do revivals, I mean, I was talking to, I just noted, by the way, right before you, right before we, we connected today, I just, uh, uh, Dominic Cavendish, who's the uh, head critic of the, uh, of the London Telegraph, there's a revival opening there, I think this week, maybe this weekend. And uh, he did a retrospective and talked to all of us. And I just, I just was looking at what he had to say. I didn't have a chance to finish it. But one of the things uh, uh, we talked about was, uh, was the fact that when we did the production of Greece, when Greece was done in Chicago, it was really nitty gritty and uh, that they were really based on real people. And, uh, and it, was, it, it had a great deal of authenticity. My job was to keep that authenticity, but at the same time, make them likable. And so that wouldn't be the kind of divide you often had in high schools between the, the greasers and the, and the collegiates, et cetera. Um, but to a certain extent, he asked me, and I said, I, I think we achieved that. And I think that's one of the reasons the show became a, a, big, a big hit because it became universal. And he said, so really it was you that started this, this softening of Greece. And I mean, he was saying it laughingly, but it's absolutely true because every revival that's happened since has gotten lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. So eventually it's going to be, I think it's going to be pretty much a cartoon. Um, but I mean, there've been some fantastic revivals, but they all, they all play the surface more than the guts of the show. Um, and I guess I have to bear the responsibility of starting that process. And of course, now when they do revivals, they oftentimes also put uh, uh, put uh, put music from the movie in, which is understandable. People love those two songs. People in general don't understand that those two songs, uh, You're the One That I Want and Hopelessly Devoted to You, weren't in the original. Those are all songs developed for the movie. But... Uh, so it's all kind of become one now, yeah. And so how did that movie, because I know you weren't involved with that movie, but was that a choice on your part or was that? Well, it wasn't a choice because I'm sure I would have accepted if I was offered it. It was tough for me. It was tough for me. It was tough for me only in that a lot of the people that, that I was involved with uh, were involved with it. And to a certain extent, when Pat Birch became the choreographer, and that was their, I mean, that was their saving grace. Um, I mean, I think Randall Kaiser did a nice job on the movie, but it was Pat that brought the substance of the show. And that iconic choreography is the same choreography as she had done in the show. And so to a certain extent, she brought my work along with her because that had been a collaboration. And, uh, uh, and she talks about that too. 
Uh, but it's, uh, so that was a little tough, but you know, I, I, I don't know that, I don't know whether this is in the book, but this is an important moment in my life. I've always felt that if you feel, if you feel jealousy towards something and you know that it's not, uh, or envious, and you know that that's not really valid, you need to embrace it and become one with it. And so this was one of the first things I did. So what I did, I gave the biggest party I've ever given in my life here at my house that was involved with Greece alumni from the stage productions, because at that point we'd had two or three tours, maybe four, and also all the movie people. And this was right before they were gonna start shooting. And I had them all at a party together. And from that point on, I was part of it. It was part of me. So there was no separation. So no, it wasn't my choice. I don't think by the way, I'd have been the right director, that being said, because I think one of the reasons the movie succeeded is that it's a 70s look at the 50s, you know, uh, which is what movies do. It's why you see those hairstyles in, in, in 30s movies that uh, are supposedly taking place in the 1800s and they have hairstyles that were, that were in the 1930s. But Greece became Alan Carr's concept was it was a viewpoint from the 70s. And, and so many of the orchestrations, everything became uh, 70s. And I think it's one of the reasons the movie was a, was a big hit. And I, I wouldn't have brought that. I would have tried to, to recreate the, uh, the stage production in film. So uh, I remember though it, it was, uh, and it was all happening by the way, all around. I mean, we were still totally involved with the show because of the, the, we had tours out and Broadway was happening. But I remember a producer, Larry Mark, who worked at Paramount at the time, um, um, offered me a screening room to see the movie of Greece by myself before it ever opened, just so I could react to it and see what I thought before people always ask you, because of course anybody's gonna ask you, what'd you think, what'd you think? You know, and expected me to say I didn't like it. And it was a fantastic way to do it because I could go through, needless to say, they're complicated emotions. This had been my baby. You know, and it had been at that point, it had been a huge involvement in my life. Um, and uh, it was fun to see it. And I did like it. I had a good time. And I thought I thought Pat's work in particular was spectacular. But I thought John did a, a wonderful job. And John and I are friends. And I thought Olivia was great. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, what's not to like? You know, it's just different. It's just not the only thing that upsets me is when people think that somehow the show came out of the movie <laughs> and that that just couldn't be more wrong. And to some, and to some extent, that's what the book's about is writing that because it, the movie could only have happened because of what happened in the work on the stage. And Didi Khan gave us a nice blurb about the book, which is on the cover. And she says exactly that. She said what happened in the movie, you know? So anyway, that's... Um, that's a divergence into the film. But that party I gave was one of the most important things I ever did. And it's kind of led me throughout my life to do that. So the moment I feel envious or jealous of something and, you know, cause we can't help but feel that. Uh, nobody, nobody gets out scot-free. I don't care how fabulous a person they are. They're going to feel some sort of pang of, uh, gosh, I wish I could have done that or whatever. And whenever I feel it now, I call up the person if I know them and I say, congratulations. And then it no longer exists anymore. Yeah. Just, uh, 
it's just, it's, I'm one with it. So um, with Greece, with it, of course, running for eight years on Broadway and then having the tours in the London production, how do you think the show changes depending on the cast? Oh, it changed a lot. Uh, I mean, those first two London productions were successful, uh, which I directed uh, and Ken produced and Maxine produced and Pat choreographed, uh, but they weren't wildly successful. And I think it's because at that point, England had their actors were more divided. They were divided, they were the musical comedy actors and they're the classical actors. Now that's all kind of become one. And uh, I saw, I, I don't know what this new revival is gonna be like, but I saw a revival at the Dominion Theater. Gosh, it must it's gotta be at least a decade ago, maybe maybe 20 years ago, I don't know. But, it's, uh, but it, was, it was dazzlingly good, you know, but it totally depends on it. If you don't have a cast, if you don't have a cast that totally fits these characters and you don't have a cast that has its, its own charisma for each part, it's not going to be very successful. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, that was something we took a great deal of care uh, with, with all of our different companies. Every company, they certainly followed the original blocking for the most part uh, and, and the original pattern of the production but they were also encouraged to make it their own so that they, they were their own personalities. And we had fabulous people. I mean, you know, just using Danny Zuko, which is the iconic part of the whole show, obviously. Um, everybody improved it and made something of it, but everybody is indebted to Barry Boswick who started it because he's the one that came up with a lot of those first things. I mean, I used to, I used to say that I, I really wanted to make a, a, a compendium of just showing what every actor had brought to that part, just in the uh, in the drive-in scene alone, because every actor. And by the way, one of the great joys of directing Greece was that we got to introduce uh, a lot of people, uh, especially those that were right for the Zuko part, became the movie stars of the you know of the late seventies, eighties, and even into the nineties. I mean, whether it be whether it be John or Greg Evigan or, uh, or Patrick Swayze or Richard Gere, you know, it just, the list just went on and on. And that was thrilling, but, uh, but yeah, it all depends. I think everything depends on the cast. I think what a director does 70% of your work at least is uh, casting uh, because if you cast it wrong, it's not gonna work. You know, it'll be struggling. They may be good actors, uh, but if it's not, if they're not right on the money in terms of what they need to do, then it's just not going to bring off the best of the play. And so I'd be curious to know about casting for the Your Next Show, which was over here, which you mentioned. And so was it your choice to have the Andrew sisters in that or that, did that come as? No, that, that's, that's so interesting. I mean, did you even know who the Andrew sisters were? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you're, you're unusual, of course, in so many ways. Uh, in terms of that kind of knowledge. But, uh, you know, one of the confusions of the play was um, a lot of people thought the Andrew sisters were dead. <laughs> and they, uh, and uh, so you had to say, no, it's bringing the Andrew sisters out of retirement. It's not, it's not a, a recreation of something created in the 40s. But it wasn't my idea at all. It was Ken and Maxine's idea. And actually it started with Patty doing a show out here in California called Victory Canteen. 
And that's what Ken and Maxine bought. And then their idea was, because there were only two of the, of the women alive at that point. So it was their idea to bring Maxine into the show and to make it two people. And then this victory canteen. So the, the book would have had to have been rewritten. But Pat and I did not feel Victor Canteen could be rewritten to become what we thought the show needed to be. So we started from scratch. But it was Ken and Maxine's idea totally to do, to, to do the Andrew Sisters. So it then became an Andrew Sisters vehicle, basically. And then, uh, and then when we said we didn't want to do Victor Canteen, we brought in a new writer and literally started from scratch. It's an entirely new show. But that's how Patty, that's how they got to see um, uh, Patty Andrews perform. And so, and so the whole show was written then around them. And of course, I don't know whether you, you've had a chance to, to read it, but it's, it's, uh, it's again, another very simplistic plot, but it's basically the two women are searching for a third because that's what makes that harmony. The Andrews sisters harmony is based on the three-part harmony. And that's why it's such a unique sound. And so the whole plot line, and it involves, you know, the woman they find turns out to be a Nazi spy because it's all going done during the Second World War. It's all very charming and very funny. Um, and she's only exposed because she can't remember, she can't remember the second verse of the Star Spangled Banner because of course she never knew it. <laughs> she's German. Not that any Americans would know it either. But anyway, anyway, it worked quite well as, as, a, as, a, as a simple plot line. Uh, it's interesting, though, I mean, just going to to the next degree, and again, another thing what happened in previews, uh, the original script had some marvelous satire on the 40s. I mean, it really was. It was terrific. There was a fan, fantastic uh, uh, thing that, with the Black character who played the porter because it was showing how, how, uh, how they had sometimes been ignored, and, and it was all... It was focused, it became quite serious at times. And then we realized during previews, you can't satirize something that has the real people in it. <laughs> you know, so we had to get rid of most of that stuff because it just didn't make any sense. It was really good, but it just made no sense because over here were the real people who were right there in the 40s. And then we were trying to do a satire and you can't do a satire or a parody based on something when you have to have the real people. So anyway, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's how over here happened. But it was definitely Ken and Maxine's idea. Um, I think they're, they were really good at those kind of initial. They, Ken has a particular sense of the zeitgeist when it comes to popular theater. Uh, I don't have that. But he just seems to know when something is going to hit an audience big time. But some of his... Uh, his methods of finding out, and I use them to this day, of whether an audience is loving the show or engaged, and they're just really accurate. One, he can go out in the middle of, uh, during an omission of a show, and just listen to hear what people are saying. And if they're not talking about the show, then the show is not working. It means that their outside lives, these people, is more interesting than what they're seeing right at the moment. But another thing he said was if people leave a lot of programs, it's also not working because it wasn't memorable. They don't need to take uh -huh. something home. There are, he's got a whole bunch of those, but he just has a, he has an uncanny ability in that regard, I think. And uh, it, it's proved very useful to him and it certainly proved useful to me and to other people who've worked with him.
And that was a great collaboration. I mean, to swing back to when you were talking about about uh, whose ideas do you listen to? I mean, Ken and I would fight, uh, I mean, big time over <laughs> ideas. I mean, you know, because we both felt so strongly about them. But it was never personal. It was just about the trying to, to convince uh, the other one that this was important and this uh, and that this worked. But the, you, you saw a lot of that in the book. So, yeah, so, but you'll have a good time talking to him. Oh, yeah. And so to go back just for a minute over here, I'd be curious to ask, what were the Andrews sisters sort of like in rehearsal and with each other? And <laughs> Have you heard anything? Yes, yeah, <laughs> a little bit from previous interviews. Oh, that's so funny. Well, uh, the Andrews sisters were great in rehearsal, actually. In rehearsal, they were terrific. They were just fabulous. There was one moment, <laughs> there was one moment with Maxine, where the stage manager came up to me because we were rehearsing and, and getting ready for previews over the holidays. And, uh, and so we were gonna rehearse on New Year's Day and the big football game, I can't remember who was playing. But the stage manager uh, came up to me and was very nervous and said, because um, I had said, we're gonna have a big run through tomorrow. And he came up to me and said, uh, I think there's something you ought to know. And I said, what, what? And he said, Maxine's not gonna be here tomorrow. <laughs> and it was a full rehearsal day. I mean, she had no right not to be there. Uh, you know, she had to be there, but she was not gonna be there. And I, I was stunned um, uh, because she wanted to watch football games. <laughs> so that's what she was gonna do. Uh, but she did stay out because there was really nothing any of us could do without making unpleasantness. Um, and then, uh, they were always very competitive with each other, competitive with each other, and uh, Maxine in particular, because Patty was also always the soloist, and uh, and Maxine was always to a certain extent second, and uh, and so there was there was that, and so the when we had the rehearsal the next day that Patty didn't show up, that Maxine didn't show up for, uh, Patty played both parts and. I'm sure you can imagine she was brilliant. She just was a trooper, you know, it, but it was out to prove not that she, you know, it was to prove that, look what I could do. I can take care of both roles. Uh, they didn't really get along. Um, uh, they hadn't for a long time. Uh, there are a number of things that happened that are quite interesting. And that continued right up. They also, there were certain things, again, I liked them very much. They worked, I worked really well with them. And they did, they did, they were willing to try anything I wanted to try, uh, which I admired, but they had, there was just a lot of tension between them. And so when, when we were gonna, uh, they also, uh, I think this was Patty, but it decided that they wouldn't do press uh, because they wanted to be paid for press. Well, nobody gets paid for press <laughs> if you're a show. You just, that's part of the job, but they wouldn't do it. So that was part of the confusion. So we weren't building the audience. We should have, even though the reviews on that show were just spectacular. I mean, they were just, I think out of hundreds and hundreds, there were maybe four bad ones. And, uh, and that didn't help us. And the, the title was confusing. People didn't know what that meant over here. Of course, it's parody on Over There, which is the famous Second World War, First World War song. But it's, uh, is it First World War? Anyway, whatever it is. Um, and uh, 
And so there was confusion, but Ken and Maxine had a great idea and they said, we're gonna close it in New York. We'll take it out on the road for a year and then we'll come back into New York, which would have been a, which would have been an, a phenomenal thing. One, if you could imagine how that kind of show, because one of the remarkable things was right at the end of the show, uh, after the curtain call, they, they did some of their own classic iconic songs and audiences would literally go out of their minds uh, because it was, their sound was spectacular. It brought back fantastic memories. And so it was, a, it was, a, it would have, it would have, it would just would have run forever and, and played huge houses. And, um, and uh, they fought and ultimately it ended up so that Ken and Maxine felt they couldn't take it out. So the show closed in, while it was in fantastic condition. It was heartbreaking. I cried and cried at the back of the theater uh, that day because it's like watching something alive being stabbed to death because it hadn't grown tired. It hadn't grown old. Uh, it was still pleasing to every audience. Anyway, it's hard. that was a heartbreaking experience that closed. Yeah. Yeah. And another show you did that I know closed somewhat quickly, even more quickly, was um, Frankenstein. Um, Yes, that's my legendary flop. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I mean, that's that's heartbreaking on another level. Um, over here, over here, of course, had been it's still been a success. It'd been a great critical success, and it done well for a year. It just wasn't going to become one of those long running shows because of what I just told you. But Frankenstein, oh my God, we worked two years on Frankenstein, conceiving it, designing it, uh, all of that stuff, and. Uh, and, and when we did it uh, during the previews, uh, we had, it's confusing because people say it closed in one night because of course it is, that's true, it did, it opened and closed. That doesn't happen anymore. That only used to happen in the old days. Now they just never close them that quickly. But in those days they did. Um, and I, I, you probably know, but Joe Allen's, one of the conceits at Joe Allen's in New York is all the posters on the wall are those one night wonders, um, the major flops of the New York theater. Um, Frankenstein was in there one day, but it fell on somebody's head one day. <laughs> and, it, and then it, it broke. So it, it, I don't know whether it's back up again or not. But, uh, but Frankenstein, Frankenstein got, I, it got worse than mixed reviews. It got bad reviews. Um, uh, the audiences during those previews had loved the show. I mean, they had truly loved the show. Um, we had standing ovations all the time, which is de rigueur now, but at that point it was, it was more unusual, but they just loved it because my whole idea in Frankenstein was to create something that was, made us feel wonder as a child, with the whole concept behind it. So there were special effects that had never been seen and have never been seen since, by the way. I mean, there was the people who've seen that show are very grateful. And I don't know whether you read any of that. I think it was last year or the year before, but they did a look back at it at 40 years um, and what had happened and why it closed. Um, so everybody's going to have a different opinion, but, uh, but because I'm one of the survivors <laughs> and a lot of them are gone now, that my feeling is what happened was 
there had been a lot of tension among the producers. The original producer had been a terrific guy named Joe Kipnis, but he didn't have the money to, to do this kind of major production. So he brought in these other producers and uh, Terry Allen Kramer was one of them who was a big producer at the time uh, and had tons of money. And, and the uh, and 20th Century Fox was behind it uh, in um, Alan uh, uh, Gittle, who is, uh, who is the father of the famous Gittle, you know, the composer. And uh, uh, when the reviews were negative, and some, to some extent the reviews were negative, I begged, I begged them, I said, you cannot put the critics in the same seats they usually sit in because the show was so big, they will never see the show. They will literally, it'll be right here in front of their faces. Uh, they won't be able to see the overall concept. Um, and they put them right where they had always put them. So, you know, so that was a big, a big downer, but also gossip had gotten around. But anyway, that's not what closed the show. People think it's because it got bad reviews. It's not. Evita got just as bad reviews. There are a lot of shows that get just as bad reviews. Then that point, the New York Times too was a lot more powerful than it is now. New York Times can't close a show anymore. It's very powerful, but it, it can't close a show if it's popular. Yeah. But what happened was they made a quick decision to close it because if they closed it by a certain time, which was the 4th of January, they could use it as a write-off for the previous year. So they could write it off financially. And so they decided to do that. Then there were many people that said, including Terry Allen Kramer's father, who said, I love this show. I will put in 100,000. That was a lot of money in those days. I'll put in 100,000 to keep it running until you see whether you have an audience. Uh, that was going on. Um, uh, Alan Gittle, uh, I think it was Alan, but he, he said, and this was, had never happened before, he said, we'll film it for television. It, those things had never been done at that point. So that would have been done. The 100,000 was there, plus the equity bond had been posted. If nobody had come to theater in the next week, they wouldn't have lost money, you know, because they they had it. I mean, it would have cost money to run the show some, but it would have been a very minor expense. So then everybody started regrouping. Unfortunately, as you probably know, once you post the closing notice, the actors are free. Yeah. They reviews them from their contracts. Unfortunately, David Dukes, uh, who was a replacement for the first Frankenstein that we that would just turned out to be too young, brilliantly talented guy, um, but he was just too young. And David came in, but David took a show during that 24 hours. He took a television show. And I never forgave David. Um, he was a wonderful actor, but I never forgave him because I feel like so many lives were truly changed forever because of his decision to take that show. Because the producers then, they didn't want to do it with an understudy and you can't blame them because what it had going was uh, was a lead that had worked and the whole show worked. So it was, that was, that was just, that was, that was more than heartbreaking. That was devastating. I always thought up until that point, I thought if you did, if you did your work well, if you worked hard, you know, things would turn out. And that just proved to me that I'm not in control of that. Yeah. Um, other people were. Uh, and because they controlled the money, it happened. And 
it changed you know changed the author's life particularly but if you haven't read those new york times uh, that 40 year retrospective that's worth looking at because we all talk about it yeah um uh, jennifer schuster i think was the reporter um and it was just a feature story and it's funny when she called and said uh, and said we want to do a a story about frankenstein and and why people still remember it and still talk about it um, and I said, okay, I'm just going to be honest. If you're out to do a hatchet story, if you're out to just do another attack of Frankenstein, we're not interested in talking. But if you really want to try to see what we think happened, then we'd be delighted to talk to you. And she did. And we did. And so I'm really glad that exists. Yeah. But that's Frankenstein. Took me a long time to recover from that. But on the positive side, on the positive side, I mean, I literally wanted to withdraw. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to direct for a while. I was contracted to do a production of Chekhov's uh, Three Sisters at the American um, Conservatory Theater in San Francisco, who I had a long time relationship with. And it was a major thing that I was getting to do that. I'd never done Chekhov. I love Chekhov. I think he's the greatest writer in the world, including Shakespeare, et cetera. And the company out there, this was when they still had a rotating rep. Only two theaters in America had that, the Guthrie Theater and, and the American uh, Conservatory Theater. And they were just superb because they'd all been working together for years. And I tried to get out of my contract and Bill Ball, the genius artistic director said, I'm not letting you out of your contract. Not because, uh, you know, but, uh, well, because this is exactly what you need to do. Uh, he said, you need to get back working on something that's important and you need to get back directing. And uh, I begged him to let me out and he just wouldn't do it. And it turned out to be truly Charles, the best work I've ever done. And that's because I was so open and so vulnerable that the actors and I found that play. And I don't know whether you know Three Sisters yet, but it's 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 a remarkable work of work, and uh, wherever you are in life, Chekhov will be about that. At your age, it'll be about that. At my age, it'll be about that. So whenever you go back to it, it always has those things in it. And it, anyway, it, that turned out to be really special. But uh, but <laughs> remember, they did a they were gonna they wanted to do an interview with me. Uh, the front page of the, uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, I think. And I said, I said, I don't want to do this if it's going to be all about Frankenstein. And they said, no, 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 no. We'll, of course, talk about it, mention it, but it won't be. And of course, it comes out. Frankenstein bombs on Broadway. Tom Moore comes to San Francisco. I mean, you know, so, you know, there you are. But anyway, the ups and downs. Um, it's a long time ago now, but it still hurts. I mean, it still hurts just because it was, it's also, it it was so memorable in so many ways. Um, and um, I just knew people got something out of it that they don't get to see. Uh, there's another factor, by the way, just jump, jumping back. I mean, I could go on talking for hours about Frankenstein. Uh, it's funny, my, my, my bigger hits, I don't feel I need to talk about because they were there they were out there, people got to see them, but Frankenstein, only those 30 days of previews did people get to see it. And uh, I just wanna share it with them what happened. But it was also, because it was such a big scenic production, that was right before 
the English invasion with all the gigantic musicals like uh, uh, like Cats and uh, and well, it was a long time before Phantom, but it was all of those big productions, and uh, the critics did not want that. They didn't want it. They felt it was a destruction of Broadway. Uh, and so we were the first one to bear that brunt. And they complained about it with these later productions as well. But they were so big that they they simply survived the, the attack. And so I'd be curious, this is sort of going back a little bit, but overarching. Um, what inspired your decision to do only plays after Greece and over here? To it wasn't. You know that is that is circumstance. That's not. Uh, I mean, there are a couple of musicals, and I don't particularly want to mention them because other people did them first. But I was offered them, and I didn't do them, uh, and I could have, um, and I probably should have. <laughs> but everybody's career is filled with those things. But it just was circumstance that that happened. I mean, I had come out to try to start. Uh, well, I already lived in California, but I was trying to really get a. a um, a film and, and television career started. And I, I didn't really have a great deal of interest in coming back to New York at that point. And it was again, a point of good luck with Marcia Norman and that she felt I was the exact person to do Nightmother. And uh, we had only had a few conversations at that point. I mean, we're great friends now, but they had been casual conversations, not about doing anything together. I just met her. And she knew me. So again, another section of luck, et cetera. But it's, it's uh, that, I was sorry another musical never happened in many ways because they're such fun. And uh, I love the collaboration. Um, you, you've, you've probably heard this, uh, but, uh, and it's attributed to Neil Simon, but I don't know that Neil Simon actually said it, but he said, uh, you know, out of town previews with, uh, with musicals are so fraught with problems. And he said, I hope if Hitler is alive, he's out of town with a new musical, uh, you know, because it's uh, because it can be so daunting, but it can also be so thrilling. Um, and I miss that. And I miss the, uh, I just miss that, that thrill that an audience gets when a musical falls into place, especially a new musical. I've never really wanted to do revivals because uh, I, I always feel like if I've seen something, um, what's the point? It's been done well, um, unless I feel something has just been completely missed the point. Um, then, um, then why do it? I've seen it. Um, it was successful. So. And so with that sort of in mind, what was the reason for doing Once in a Lifetime and then a little hotel on the side? We're both revivals, I think. Well, the uh, uh, Once in a Lifetime, um, I did two productions of that. It, uh, I did, uh, uh, no, well, I did do two productions. One was with Ed Herman, uh, who was a wonderful actor, uh, starring as George uh, and Bob Prosky uh, down at the Arena Stage in Washington. And I love Kaufman and Hart. I mean, they were my theater gods. I, I just loved them. I mean, that you talk about authors that knew exactly what they needed to do. I mean, one of the, one of the stories I, well, I'll jump here and then I'll go back and answer your question. But the one of the things I found out, they, they were so brilliant in terms of just what they needed to have in terms of exposition for a joke to pay off. And they could rewrite constantly and figure it out. And it was that combination of the two of them together. I mean, they both were successful on their own, but together they were just brilliant. And 
the first scene of Once in a Lifetime is just filled with exposition in a way that audiences just don't know how to sit still for anymore. They just don't. And it was also in three acts. So, but this first scene. And so I thought, I know how to cut this. And so I started cutting it down and the scene worked like gangbusters. But there were laughs that were not paying off in the third act. Uh, and every time I put back one of those lines of exposition from the first scene, which would have happened two hours before it, the laugh happened in the third act. It was just an amazing exercise in watching um, what true craftsmen know how to do uh, because they knew what they had to set up. They knew, you know, there's an old cliche of you set it up, you know, you, you make sure you lay it in at least one more time and repeat it, and then you can pay it off big time. But without those lines, it just didn't happen. And so I love that show. And I, I love the I love the joy of that show. I love the the clockwork precision of that show, and um, and I love that it's back that it's a parody about Hollywood, and I just think it's it's outrageously funny. Um, so I I very much wanted to do it again, and that's when John Lithgow took over the role that Ed Herman played, and uh, Treat Williams was in that, and Jane Meadows, and a number of uh, pretty well known people. But that was just great fun. And that was at Circle in the Square. Um, which is on Broadway, but uh, but a different kind of theater. And I was the first one to use it, not as a full circle, but use it as a three quarter, which they've done many times since then. Um, or no, that's, I'm not, is that true? Or it was the opposite. Anyway, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's, an odd, it's an odd theater to use yeah. um, because the theater at Circle in the Square is copied on their original theater downtown, which, which was existed because of the exist because of the existing structure of the building downtown. So to some extent, they never really ever solved the problem because they weren't starting from from scratch. But anyway, I love doing that production, and that's actually that's the only time I've gotten a full front page story in the in the New York Times on the arts and leisure uh, was because of that production because that came uh, that came not long after. I think that was I think it was may have been 78, but it was, uh, I mean, it, as I'm living it, it all seems like it was a long time. But of course, all of that was a really rapid fire um, uh, stuff with Greece and then over here and then, uh, and then once in a lifetime and, and then Frankenstein was in 80. And at the same time, I was also doing all these resident theater shows at the Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis, doing Loot. And, American Conservatory Theater, I'd started doing that. And that's where I did a little hotel on the side. Although it wasn't called a little hotel on the side there, it was a different translation adaptation called Hotel Paradiso. And it was very successful uh, in San Francisco and enormous fun, again, because they had brilliant actors. And then I did that again too uh, for Tony Randall's Actors Theater in New York. Um, and at that point, it was an adaptation called The Little Hotel on the Side. And there were parts of it that were really successful and parts of it that were not as successful. Uh, it was just a mixture. Uh, but I had a great time doing both of them. Uh, but it didn't. Um, but, but, you know, you have your, you, you, any director is going to have certain productions that are not as successful as the others, but they're not. 
they're not bad experiences and they're not flops. Um, and that's a little bit the way I feel about uh, a little hotel on the side. And I also met fabulous people. I mean, one of the people in that production playing because he was just, he was really young and he was just really becoming part of the New York theater was Danny Burstyn. And, and the nicest man, uh, the nicest man in show business. I mean, he's truly just a remarkable guy. Uh, but he, he was just, even then, he was like an apprentice, basically, or a journeyman. I can't remember what they called it. But he, he just couldn't have been more supportive and more positive. And that was true of all of those younger people and uh, that were in the production. But there were some fabulous people, Paxton Whitehead, and Lynn Redgrave. It's just uh, lovely people. And Tony was a terrific guy, too. So, so it, um, so again, positives, but not, it, it never took off. Um, um, I think part of it was because the cast was older and had not been working together as, as much. And so we could never get it up really to the proper speed. And those farces, uh, that's very different than once in a lifetime, uh, because those farces, and that was a farce, because that's a Fado farce, obviously. And I mean, they're like clockwork. You can't, you have to have everything timed within split seconds because those doors have to slam at any given point in a, in a production, you know? Yeah. And so you mentioned, um, I'd love to ask you more about working with Lynn Redgrave because you worked with her, I think three times or more on. on yeah, you're very thorough in your research. Oh. Uh, uh, I'm impressed. Uh, yes, I did. I loved her. Uh, I mean, I, I really loved her. She was fantastic. Uh, we worked at that. Uh, we did that. We also, she came in, Carol Burnett on, on Moon Over Buffalo, um, took a hiatus and she came in for that month or six weeks, whatever it was, and took over the role. And, uh, and, and I also had worked with her on a sketch show. And it seems to me there was something called Fridays, I think. And then there was something else we did too. Um, and uh, she just was, she just, oh, oh, the greatest thing we did, I'm leaving out the greatest thing we did, where she was fantastic is another Chekhov. And that's Cherry Orchard, which is with the La Jolla. That's maybe the second best thing I've ever done, uh, or maybe third after Night Mother. But it's, uh, but that was a splendid cast. Oh my God, that was great. And, uh, and she was just wonderful. And she would, Lynn was amazing. She was always so open to things. I mean, it's still hard for me to believe. There's a cherry tree, by the way, that that cast gave me that's sitting right outside my back door and still growing to this day. And that's, that's now 20 years ago. Um, and um, I miss her. She was just a wonderful actress and so much fun to work with because you try anything, which is really, you've heard me use that phrase a lot, but that's what, uh, that's what, I find joyous uh, with working with actors because they can, actors like that, they have marvelous technique, they have marvelous skill, but they're totally open to new things. And so it becomes just a joyous process and, and rehearsal and celebration. And so you've mentioned um, Nine Mother a few times. And so I'm curious to ask about casting as it applies to that. And how did you find that both on stage and on screen? Well, the um, I love both casts. Um, Kathy Bates, of course, is uh, is absolutely phenomenal, and uh, uh, is um, 
I mean, that's one of the most remarkable performances I've ever seen on stage. Uh, and I had a moment in a rehearsal hall because we started it in Boston at uh, American Repertory Theater, which is uh, at Cambridge, it's part of Harvard. And uh, it became, it went way past acting. It became something completely different um, uh, in that it was just so revealing. And I never failed at fail. And Anne Petoniak was fantastic. And uh, we did see other people. Uh, Kathy was somebody that Marcia had worked with and, and it had not been written for someone um, uh, who looked like Kathy. It had been written for someone um, very thin and, um, and dark. And Kathy brings a warmth, which is why it's so great because you like being in her presence. So, I mean, I, 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 I thought, well, I loved working on that too. I loved working with Marsha Norman. I usually have a, an influence on scripts. I had no influence on that script uh, because it was just done. I mean, maybe a line or two here and there. Um, um, but I just had a great time because working with those actors was just so, always so interesting, so fresh and so revealing. And the movie came about, um, uh, people don't understand this because they say, well, why wasn't Kathy Bates cast in the movie? Well, Kathy Bates wasn't a star at that time. And the reason the movie happened is because Sissy Spacek, who I also knew personally, and like very much and think she's really wonderfully talented, extraordinarily talented. But she had, uh, she wanted to do the movie. So that's why the movie happened, period. And then Anne, and then, uh, um, Anne Bancroft, who I became great friends with while we were working, um, joined the cast. And if you haven't seen the stage play, um, uh, then you'll like the movie, I find in general. If you've seen the stage play, I'm talking about my original cast um, or our original cast, then you probably uh, won't like the movie. So it, it, you know, but if you haven't seen the stage play, you won't be comparing it to Kathy Bates and Anne Petoniak. Um, but both were special experiences for me. And that was also my first film. So that meant a great deal to me to be able to do that. That again, that only happened because Marcia Norman insisted on it. Oh. So very lucky. And so how did you approach this play with it being uh, just a two-person cast on a small? And how is that different from doing, say, Grease with? <laughs> well, you just, you just go, I feel I'm, I'm very big. I mean, yes, there's a concept uh, with anything. And I mean, it starts with who you hire to do set design and who you work with. And that box within box within box in, in terms of Nightmother was important. But basically, you just go moment to moment, making each moment work. If you know the play works or you believe the play works, then it's just finding the life in every given moment. And I find then five moments add up to 20 and then 20 add up to 60 and, and then it just keeps going. And then hopefully the, in the end, you have something. Um, it's very different, obviously, than doing a musical, especially in that regard, because it was real time. So it's in those 90 minutes, it's real time on stage. And then 90 minutes later, she's gonna pull a trigger on a gun. Um, so, uh, so, but all of it is about, directing in general is about focus and about principally about storytelling. And so you are constantly trying to tell that story and keep the audience focused where you want them. So uh, on a big musical like Grease, sometimes it becomes uh, 
it becomes problematic because you have to you have to decide exactly where you want that action to be uh, and what you want the action the audience to focus on because there's going to be a lot going on on the stage, but something has to be primary. With a small play like Nightmother, it's easier to focus it. And in film, it's the same thing. Every time a director picks a shot, uh, that's his focus. It's the same kind of focus to a certain extent you're doing on a proscenium. It's just you're focusing in in a way you can't do on a proscenium. Um, you know, so, but you also have to have, it's like so many young directors with, uh, with film or, or television, they forget you also, you have to do the proper setups. It's all still the same. And if you haven't seen the setup to the moment that's about to happen, then the moment's not gonna happen. I mean, and I've seen so many people direct comedy. I don't like doing sitcoms, but I did a number of them. Um, uh, but they don't, do, they don't show the setup. And so you have no idea, so it doesn't pay off the joke. You have to have the setup. Anyway, it's, uh, but it's all the same thing. And the most important thing in any of it is storytelling. Always, always. <laughs> and so when you're working on a project like Night Mother, which not that it isn't a great play, but a very sad play and depressing, how do you manage to make that sort of acceptable to the audience or something the audience wants to see at the same time? Well, the same thing is true to a certain extent with Chekhov. Yes, in Night Mother, it's extreme because one of the actors, I mean, one of the characters is, is, is deeply depressed and sees no way out uh, of her life. But at the same time, in any given moment, they're not trying to be unhappy. And that really is the key. And it's key in Chekhov. So many productions of Chekhov are so, uh, are so dismally unenergized and, and focused. But those people in Chekhov or Nightmother, they're out to have as good a time as they can. So when the play of Nightmother opens, uh, she has decided that she's going to do all these things that are going to help her mother after she's gone. So they're putting candy into different jars because her mother is, is, is a fanatic about candies. So she's trying to make that pleasant. And to a certain extent, I think that makes it pleasant for her. So I think you're always reaching for the positive as long as you can. And then when you can no longer do it, then it becomes either a tragedy or becomes a comedy, you know, but it's, but I don't think people, you can't play into uh, what somebody said, what did you think the theme? I said, I don't deal much with themes. People write about themes after it's been done to me. I just worry about human behavior and, and what it's going to look like. But, uh, but you focus on, uh, on just, what is the life in that given moment? Or what is the fun in that given moment? Or what is the pain in that given moment? All of it works, but it's storytelling. You can't jump it and then go to a conclusion if you haven't shown the steps to get you there. So that's the way we worked on Nightmother. Uh, I mean, an interesting thing which I tell people is that the actors, when we had to uh, rehearse it in pieces, it was very difficult for the actors because they then would end the day and there would have been no catharsis. Once yeah. we started being able to run it all the way through, it gives the actors a catharsis. It gives all of us a catharsis. And they were able to then let it go. You know, it's just interesting. So yes, it was painful for, for, those, uh, for those actors to play that kind of material, but 
but they could let it go because they completed the arc of the material. And what was that like? Uh, that sort of same thing for you as well of having to go through that each day and, and live that. You know, the thrill for me is I, uh, as a director, I'm, I, I think I, I understand the pain. I, I identify in many cases with the pain, et cetera, but I'm not going to have to experience it. It's again, the difference between directing and acting. I'm going to just have to watch it. So what I'm watching for is whether we're succeeding in each one of these moments happening. So it doesn't become painful to me. It becomes miraculous to me to watch these things, um, these things come to life um, because I'm not having to, to reach inside myself and come up with those moments of pain that allow me to, to present that uh, for an audience. Uh, so for me, it's mostly focusing on, on, uh, on what's great. Now, that doesn't, I mean, what's great in life, what's great in the moment, what's great in how the actors have brought something to life, what's great in their technique, what's amazing is how they can turn from comedy to drama. I mean, all those things. So that keeps me from, from really getting totally into it. Does not mean that they're not moments that simply knock you on the floor. And that's happened to me a number of times in Chekhov and a number of times in Night Mother, where you, you, you just are floored. But there are many, you know, I, I, live, I live my life to some extent based on, uh, on one line in Night Mother, which is a simplistic line because it's said by a simplistic woman, which is Mama, uh, as she's trying to convince Jessie not, uh, not to kill herself. And, and, and in Night Mother, there's, there's a big, a big emotional blowout uh, two thirds of the way through kind of the 11 o'clock number if you were doing musical. And then it just all calms down for a moment and they're just quietly talking to each other. And the mother says to Jesse, Jesse, things happen. You do what you can about them and you see what happens next. I think that's the secret of life. Just that, simplistic as can be but things are gonna happen. You try to deal with them and then you see what happens next. Cause you, none of us are gonna be able to plan our lives out. We're gonna do the best we can, but they're not gonna go according to how we plan. Uh, and, and the other line that I just think of often with great joy is there's a line in, again, in the same section of, I think section of the play, but where um, uh, Jesse says, this is after that big emotional uh, breakdown, and she said, if only there was something I liked, like cornflakes for breakfast. I happen to love breakfast. Every time I have breakfast almost, I think of, aren't I lucky that I love breakfast? Because that's the beginning of a day. It's the beginning of new possibilities. And, uh, you know, that's why I think that is so amazing. And Chekhov is just filled with moments like that, that you all of a sudden go, oh my God, um, you know. It just cuts in, but anyway. Um, yeah, and so how did you sort of change or did you change your vision for the play when it was on screen and working with- I didn't, I probably should have changed it more to tell you the truth. Um, um, but because it was my first film, I literally, we were able to shoot it in sequence, which is very unusual. We, there was a house, the interior of the house was built on a soundstage over at Warner Brothers. 
uh, and um, and I was able to shoot it moment by moment. So to a great extent, it was very much the play being presented on film. I think I missed some filmic opportunities that if I had been making it later, I would have been open to. Uh, I mean, my next my next filmic project was doing the series 30 something and it was a fantasy episode that allowed me to do all kinds of things with camera that were integral to what was happening. It wasn't just for the sake of using camera, but I think I could have done more with that with Night Mother. And uh, I mean, for instance, a critic once said, and I tell this story about myself, but he said, in the play, the clocks are all on stage and you see them all because you're seeing the whole thing all the time. So you see the actual time happening and there are a bunch of them. So you see it, the 90 minutes passing by. Well, in the film, you don't because you go off of them and go in the other people. And uh, Jack Kroll, a critic for Newsweek, said in criticizing this, he said, I wish he had done more, uh, more with things uh, to indicate the, the tension of time, like starting on a clock and then panning up. I mean, that's a little obvious if you do it that obviously, but I think I could have gone by a clock, you know, on the way to something so that you'd have seen what time it was and then you'd end up on one of the characters. But, you know, uh, you can actually see my progress as a director in that because it's in sequence and I get better and better as the film goes on. <laughs> if you're looking for that, you can see me improve. You can see me becoming a film director by the end. So what do you think, you mentioned that you've done a lot of work on TV as well, even if even if you don't like it as much, but- Well, I don't like it as much, but I liked doing, I liked doing the good hour stuff and I liked doing long form. I just didn't like sitcoms very much because I know some people say it's just like doing a little play. I don't think it's like doing a little play at all, but uh, with sitcoms, it's all, I mean, it's amazingly fast and, and it's amazingly uh, lucrative because it's all done in a week. You know, but it's all really about delivering the jokes that the writers want to want to deliver. And so you have a number of run threes during the week, which they then keep rewriting to hone the jokes. I mean, that's what makes it successful. But I liked doing the I liked doing a number of the television shows. I liked doing the 30 somethings. I liked doing L.A. Law, uh, even though it was restrictive visually because Steve Bochco, the producer, only wanted talking heads, basically. Uh, but you learn different things because of different restrictions. Uh, for instance, because he wanted everything close, you, they didn't have masters on that show, masters being where you go wide and can see everything happening. Uh, so our masters became moving masters. So if I was doing a, a scene with a number of people, the camera would just keep moving to find whoever was talking. So a single shot may turn into a two shot, may, may push by them with a motivated move and find a group. Uh, and that was extraordinarily helpful in learning. Um, so there were a number of series I had a good time doing. Um, uh, but it became more and more, the more I worked in television, the more it became a producer's medium. Um, and uh, as long as they appreciated what I did, then I had a great time. As soon as, uh, as, soon as it became mostly about just getting your cameras in place and getting out on time, I didn't have a very good time. Yeah. But I like. I also like doing ER. I'm very proud of uh, of a couple of those, especially the one that got Emmy nominated. So. And do you find that movie and TV stars are different than theater stars? And the well, they can. They can sometimes, not all the time. But the trappings of 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 uh, of film stars and television are 
sometimes so much greater than theater stars uh, because, I mean, <laughs> television's the only, television is the only medium in the world artistically that you might decide on the way to the drugstore one day. I think I'll be an actor. And if you have the right genetic makeup, you might become wildly popular if you can find somebody to represent you in a short time. Uh, that doesn't happen in the theater. You have to be able to prove your stuff. But so many of the actors I worked with were theater people who had then gravitated to television. But I find, yes, I find the people that hadn't worked in the theater, it's, it's, it's just a different way often of thinking about material, um, you know, because they're not used to playing a, a big section of material. One of the things about ER was so fantastic is they were all trained so well and they were all very smart. And so they were able to do a, a script on ER it was a good 25 pages longer than most our shows because those actors could, could deliver all that technical jargon and, and be on the move and be able to hit marks because the camera work was very complicated in that show. Um, and because they pre-lit the, the emergency room uh, because it was all fluorescence. But uh, yeah, um, but you know, there are going to be talented people and untalented people everywhere. I mean, I think you, and I probably have underestimated this some in television. I think you're sometimes have to spend more time coddling the actors in television, certainly than you would in theater. Yeah. I think, but uh, that takes nothing away from the fact that they're fabulous, fabulous actors in, in all the medium. I mean, I feel very lucky. I think acting is a, a very brave and extraordinary profession. And so I'd love to talk about um, one of your Broadway experiences we haven't mentioned yet, which is um, the Octet Bridge Club, which you did with Peggy. Well, yeah, it's, it's Ken, that was Ken and I third and probably shouldn't have happened collaboration. It was, you know, it, it was a lovely show. It was a very small show, uh, but it didn't belong on Broadway. It really didn't. Um, and uh, although we cast it with some fantastic ladies, because it was all ladies except one kid who comes in to take their picture, because um, it was all these sisters and of this family. And um, I don't know if there's much to say about it. I think we did it as well as it can be done. Uh, but I don't think that made it good enough. I mean, I was not surprised. I. I tried to say no to Ken a number of times uh, on that show. And I, I, I'm not sorry I did it because I met some wonderful people, but it's not something I remember either positively or negatively, um, uh, except that on opening night, which is, well, we've had several problems on Octet Bridge Club. Someone had a heart attack in the when we were when, when we were previewing down at Baltimore at the Mechanic Theater, had a heart attack in the balcony on our first uh, first preview. I don't know whether he made it or not. And then when we opened in New York, um, I had put all of my opening night gifts and telegrams and stuff in his car, and it was all stolen that night. So it just is indicative of kind of what happened to the show because the show didn't last that long. Um, I mean, there's another show that, I mean, in contrast, there's another show, um, the Steve Tessich piece, um, 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 <laughs> blanking on the name. Uh, do you have it there in front of you? The, uh, I did the Mark Taper and then it was done on 
we did it on Broadway as well. On oh, uh, Division Street. Division Street, thank oh. you. The Division Street, because Division Street had been done out here at Mark Taper, wildly successful. I mean, it was one of the most exciting nights, the first preview I have ever had in the theater, because nobody knew what to expect. But there was something that was messy about that production. You know, we had never been able to really clean it up because of a lot of things. And it also had a much more eccentric cast. And when we took it to New York, we cleaned it up way too much. We cleaned up everything. And I'm not talking about bad language. I'm just talking about everything became so neat and so so sharply delivered. And it sort of killed the, the, the piece. Plus, a lot of people in New York thought it was a veiled, a veiled uh, right-wing um, uh, pay on and it was it was just the opposite. Steve Tesich loved America. He was a uh, uh, you know an immigrant from Yugoslavia, um, uh, the old Yugoslavia, and uh, it, but that's what they saw. So it didn't work at all in New York. But but Division Street had gotten its chance. I try to explain that to people. When things get their chance, they either work or they don't work. I don't regret anything because they the Schubert's and the Mark Taper Forum put in money to keep that show running for a couple of weeks to see if it would get an audience. And New Yorkers just weren't interested. That's just the way it goes, you know? So you, you, you can let it go. That's why, that's why something like Frankenstein is heartbreaking. You know, and Octet too. I mean, Octet did have a chance to run. Um, and some people loved it, some people didn't, but it just, it wasn't really Broadway material. Um, you know, I don't think. I think it probably would have been fantastically successful off Broadway, but uh, didn't happen that way. So, um, but um, yeah. Yeah, and in terms of, the, I know you were saying you'd said no to um to the Octave Bridge Club a few times before you accepted. And so, without like naming anything else, what does make you say yes or no to? Uh, I usually, if I read some, well, it's totally different in theater and in film. In theater, you're gonna you're gonna have to conceive it and you're gonna have to see it. Um, uh, I, there's several factors. One is sometimes I see material as soon as I read it. I see it in my mind. I see what it has to be um, and what I think it's supposed to be, or, and it excites me. Uh, and if something excites me, then although I'll get second doubts always, then I also know I need to kind of review those doubts because my first instinct was this is really exciting and I go back. And the other thing is, is, is collaboration. If I love the team, it's, it's how over here happened. I certainly didn't like the, I, I wasn't particularly thrilled about the Andrews sisters. I didn't have no, no negatives, but it wouldn't have been something I'd have set out to do. But I love that collaborative team and I'm sorry that we never ended up doing more as a team, you know, but, personal things happen and it just didn't happen. But, uh, but, but I'd say basically those two things. And, and sometimes it's something that if I haven't done anything like it, I think, well, this will be a fantastic challenge. Uh, this will be fun. Uh, I'll always doubt myself at some point. I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't had a show yet that I'd somewhere, usually first rehearsal is great. Uh, but after the, somewhere in the end of the first week, second week, I think, oh, oh, this was just a terrible mistake on my part. What was I thinking? And um, mostly those things pass. But occasionally you have something like, uh, and, and again, I love this show and I really wanted to do this. When Gordon Davidson left the artistic ship of the uh, Mark Taper and the Amundsen, 
um, you know, he had been the founding artistic director and this was, I mean, he was leaving after 30 something years, but he wanted me to do one of the shows in his last season. So we picked a play I particularly love, which is Royal Family, which is by George Kaufman and Edna Ferber. It's not Kaufman and Hart, but it, it has a big heart and it's a wonderful show. In the rehearsal room, that was a superb production. I had a wonderful cast. Um, I mean, just a wonderful cast. Um, Marion Seldes was in it. George Irving was in it. Just wonderful people. But I knew as soon as we got into the Amundsen Theater, I knew it instantly. It's too small. The set was overwhelming the play. And I knew, and the set was stunning, by the way. The set was remarkable. As Doug Schmidt said, he and I've done seven or eight shows together. Uh, but it was, I knew it was never going to work. And it's a terrible, a terrible thing. I mean, it would work on a certain level but it's never going to solidify an audience. That's what you always look for. Something that's going to bring an audience together and a common experience that they love. And it would have, I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced it would have been a smaller theater. But the Amundsen, I don't know whether you've ever been in the Amundsen, but it's quite large and it's very barn-like. And uh, they've, they've revised it a couple of times to try to make it more intimate, but they... They never can succeed. Anyway, those are those moments. And then what are you going to do? You can't do anything. <laughs> you can't even tell anybody what you're thinking because uh, you don't want anybody else to get discouraged. I mean, as a director, you sometimes have to keep any of those fears and pains to yourself. Um, so. And how do you go about hiring a design team for a show and, and working? Well, I love, that's another part of the collaboration. I just love working with designers. And I tend to, once I find designers I love, I, I use them over and over. And I mean, and starting with Doug Schmidt and, and Carrie Robbins, who did the costumes on Greece, Doug Schmidt did the set, but they've both done both together and separately a number of shows that I've done. And a lot of that is you either aesthetically like what they do uh, based on previous work and also just whether you like working with them. Uh, because when you like working with them, ideas just keep, as you know, collaboration, it, ideas just keep popping, you know, and you just keep sharing ideas. Another fantastic designer was Ralph Furnicello, um, who did, did a lot of the stuff I did at the Mark Taper, who also did Division Street, and a lot of the stuff I did in American Conservatory Theater, and Bob Blackman, who did costumes on many things I did. Um, and Carrie Robbins, who, again, who did costumes. And it, I love learning. I mean, you know, because you process, I mean, with Carrie, Carrie believes that starting with undergarments, you build outward with a costume and that they're very important to how the actor feels. And I totally get that. And I think if the producers can afford it, it makes a difference. The Guthrie Theater and, uh, and the big theaters used to, uh, back when the money was plentiful, they would even go so far as to if you had a ring or a locket, it would actually be engraved with whatever it was supposed to have on it uh, because it would be in the actor's hands. Uh, but that became too expensive and that doesn't happen very often anymore. But, uh, but, I, but I love that process. Uh, I learned about limited color palettes from working with designers at ACT. That's American Conservatory Theater because Bill Ball loved limited color palettes. Ralph Funicello was particularly good at it. Bob Blackman was particularly good at it. But I've just I've just worked with some wonderful people in that. But 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 Doug and Carrie did both Greece and over here, and uh, 
and and Doug did the last stage production I did uh, uh, in in uh, the one I was just talking about the royal family. So. And then your um your last Broadway show, or at least for now, what was a um, moon? Oh, probably forever. Uh, that, <laughs> that's my guess. Probably forever, but moon over Buffalo. Yeah. And so I'd be curious to know because an interesting sort of thing about that was having that documentary being filmed at the same time. Have you seen it? Yes. Yes. And what did you think of the documentary? I thought it was, it was interesting as like a look at how a show is made. And did you feel there was an enemy? Um, what do you mean? I just mean, did you, a lot of people, a lot of people feel they're heroes and enemies and what they're watching. Did you feel that? Or did you just feel everybody was what I, well, what I think is it shows everybody trying to do their best to make the show successful. And it causes some pain in a lot of different directions, but nobody's, nobody's being evil. Nobody's being bad. They're just trying to, trying to survive. But I was just curious, oh. some people do see that some people are getting in the way of it and some people are not. And I'm just curious what you might've thought seeing. Well, I thought not necessarily that like one person was getting in the way of the whole thing, but that maybe like some of the sort of views about it were at odds between. Some of the what? As some of the like views that different people involved had were at odds with each other. Oh, well, they were definitely at odds. Here's, here's my simple take on this. Uh, uh, it was written, that play, because uh, he's a very talented playwright, and uh, that play was, he was a lawyer first, but, uh, but that play was written as a single-hander. It was written for the male lead. It was not a couple. It was about a, a fading matinee idol, uh, you know, who was doing stock. And the producers had the idea, and a, and a good one, because it's the only reason we ran it all, of expanding to a two-hander um, and making it a couple, which is a great idea, except the play had originally been written for, for the man. So basically, a great deal of time then was spent in pulling the play apart to make it equal for both parts. And then by hiring one of the most brilliant comedians ever in the history of show business, Carol Burnett, uh, it got skewed even more because then it really wasn't about two stage veterans. It was about a comedian and her stage husband. Uh, and so it just, I mean, the only reason we ran and the only reason it ran a year and the only reason it was successful is Carol Burnett. And there's nobody more brilliant at what she does. But it was a constant balance between trying to serve the play and the actors. And when I look back on it, this is my take, when I look back on it, uh, and I, I don't know that that's clear in the documentary. I like the documentary. I'm, I mean, I also like it because it was filmed at a certain time when we all still looked really good. So, <laughs> it's, a, so it's, a, it's a nice thing to have as a, as a record of your work. But, but I feel like people ask me, and I, it asked me, what would you have done differently? And I said, I said uh, because my purpose as a director has always been first and foremost, the play. That's what I was hired to do. That's what it was my job to, to bring off and present. And because there were the conflicts with, uh, 
with the, the actors sometimes in terms of what they wanted, what they didn't want. Anyway, I I said I say jokingly, I would have uh, I would have jettisoned the play and gone with the actors. <laughs> You know, because that would have allowed for a much more peaceful thing. But I say that, but I really couldn't have done it because that's just not what I did. So I just feel I was always in the middle, yeah, um, trying to balance it out, and and certainly not always successfully because I think we we stymied Carol in many places because of trying to do the play on the same things. I think sometimes they didn't give the play enough credence to to go for those moments before turning them into bits and pieces. I mean, at one point you see me say it to Carol and it's an important one for me. I mean, nobody respected Carol more than I did. I mean, and Duke, I mean, she's phenomenal. She had an amazing influence on me growing up watching her on television. But, uh, but you hear me saying to her, you can bring off anything, uh, please don't, because we're not going to figure out what's wrong here. I said, you know, she'll find a way to make anything funny because she has a genius at it. And I said, this was in previews, not in full production. And I said, so just try to, if it doesn't work, just let it fail. Don't try to turn it into something else unless it's gonna serve the play. Anyway, um, uh, we were in constant, uh, and I know she probably feels that she was let down by, I, who knows, uh, but, uh, but people ended up much more unhappy than they should have been. Interestingly enough, besides the stars, everybody else had a fantastic time, <laughs> including me. And they would say it was a really wonderful production. Uh, I mean, and a wonderful experience. It's the two stars that I think would have uh, reservations uh, about it. And I know Carol felt like somehow she was, um, she was treated unfairly, I think, but uh, certainly wasn't on purpose. Um, or with intent. It's just that trying to protect the play. Yeah. But you have to be careful as a director what you accept because I just assumed we'd all work that out and it just didn't turn out to be that way. Um, um, so anyway, that's a, that's a, I mean, that would be an interesting, if, if we had hours and we were sitting around and doing a seminar on that. Uh, It'd be interesting to talk that through just psychologically what was happening at any given moment. I mean, you know, and because um, it was fascinating. Um, but I loved back doing Broadway. I mean, I was, I'd been away for it a long time and I loved doing that kind of thing on Broadway. And, you know, I was proud of the production, so. Yeah. You can see the production. Have you ever seen any of the productions? Uh, do you ever, uh, go up to Lincoln Center and, and get into their collection of the plays that they have on tape? Oh, um, I, I've seen one there, but not as many as I should or would like. Well, I mean, I'm sure you could you could get in because of what you do, because uh, they're very careful about who they let see these things. But you would enjoy seeing certain things. Like that play, I would just be curious some someday if you're ever up there, see it, and then let me know what you think of the production, uh, because they're very accurate, those... Uh, uh, those those tapes and then the one sort of small question I would have is with this sort of maybe a little bit of conflict with the leads do you think that it changed with having Lynn Redgrave and Robert Goulet and that that was better <laughs> oh you're so, you're so perceptive Charles. <laughs> the uh the thing is Lynn was what the play was written to be you know I mean 
she was is a was is a classical actress. So so she's it. Robert Goulet <laughs> is not. And I mean, this was the oddest decision on the producer's part because when Carol went on vacation, Phil Bosco, who was a fantastic uh, comedian and classical actor, they paid him to go on vacation because they thought Robert Goulet would bring box office. Robert Goulet at that point in his life didn't bring any box office at all. And it would have been so fabulous to watch, to watch Phil Bosco and Lynn Redgrave play it. So Goulet was a, a lovely man. Uh, I mean, he really was, a, you know, a sweet, sweet man. But he did not, well, it's the truth. He just did not have what it took to play that kind of role uh, because that requires an incredible skill as a far sewer. And so it just seemed so so wrong and out of balance. And Phil Bosco was just sitting at home making full salary. Uh, you know, it just was so odd. So I, I was very depressed about that because one, I thought Lynn deserved better. Um, and, and again, it's not personally about Bob Goulet. I mean, nobody has a voice like that. I mean, that was one of the golden voices of all time. Um, and, but he didn't have that particular thing, you know? Anyway. Yeah. So it was very different, uh, but I can't tell you parts of it were better because of Lynn, but parts of it were worse because of, of, uh, of Robert. On the other hand, Robert was very charming. So he brought certain skills to it as well, but, uh, but they played well together. Lynn's an incredible actress that way in that she played whoever she's playing with, she brings out their best. And I think she did with him. But I also don't think, I don't think Robert was, uh, prepared for the work that had to be done because uh, you never have that much time when you put in a replacement cast. And, uh, um, and this is probably my fault, but after, the, after we had our first performance um, um, uh, where he performed it, I immediately went in with notes and I said, and this is what we still have to work on. And he was very upset about that because he felt that was his opening night. So he, he didn't want to think about that at that point, but we didn't have any other time. So anyway, it, those are complicated things. And there's, there's the cases where I probably should have taken a great deal more time uh, with everybody on that production in terms of the stars, uh, taking a great deal more time just to, just to psychologically assure them. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, so. And so to, for the last thing to bring us up to the present day, so how did this idea happen for this book about Greece for the 50th anniversary? Uh, the, it, it happened in, in, in a roundabout way. I had had an idea several years ago, well, five, five or six years ago now, to do something, it'd be so great because nobody's ever done anything about a, a company uh, that is uh, where they literally cover the entire uh, the entire production, the tours, the, uh, the history, the everything, uh, all of it. Uh, I mean, there are lots of stuff about creating something on Broadway and, uh, and there are anecdotal things about what it's like to travel with the show, but nobody had ever followed a show along to that thorough an extent. And I thought that'd be a great idea. But like a lot of ideas, I just, I just let it sit for a long time. But then we had, when COVID started, 
we had uh, shortly after it started uh, in the lockdown, we had an original company Zoom, um, which has only happened once. There's there's Zooms that happens often now with Greece, but they're they're everybody's Zooms. But this was just the original company, just those that had been at the Eden Theater. And, and everybody talked about, wouldn't it be great if we did something to celebrate the 50th? And a lot of people, and, and one of the ideas brought up was the idea of doing a book. But at that point, they were talking about maybe doing a, uh, you know, a book where would be only the original company and maybe they try to chapter that, that would never work the only thing anybody would be interested in is the celebrities and they wouldn't be interested in reading a book so the next day i called adrian barbeau and i said this is my idea because she had been very excited about the idea of a book and i said do you like this idea and she said yeah and so i said well let's do it and then and then i called ken and asked if he'd like to be part of it and that's how it happened and it was fantastic COVID activity because uh, I didn't mind being locked up at all, because uh, I was hearing from everybody, and I'm the first one to see the stories, and I was the first one to edit with the authors before it became something we all did, and uh, it was just great fun. It was almost like being back in rehearsal again, uh, so every day I would work on different people's stories and then call them or write them and say, I think this is what we need here, uh, and this is, you know, and they would work. It was again collaboration, and everybody was willing to do that, um, and so it all happened. And were there stories that surprised you the most? Things you hadn't thought of, or there were stories about me that surprised me <laughs> <laughs> that I had either forgotten or had just put away. But I mean, uh, I've still pulled up short when I realized that I I thought I had told Eileen Kristen that we were cutting yuck before she heard it in a company meeting. And I evidently didn't. And I evidently didn't make sure somebody else did or thought I did. But I mean, it's not something I would ever let happen now. I've always been one if something has to happen and I have to let somebody go or whatever, which has been very few times in my career. Um, uh, but, in, but that shocked me. And I remember there was a story about Peggy Lee Brennan that, um, uh, that she talks about how I made her cry. And I had no idea how strong that was, uh, that I had had that effect. So things like that about myself. There were also, I mean, there are things I just didn't know about because I wasn't there. And uh, some people write extremely well. I mean, I love Danny Jacobson's uh, stories because he's such a good writer and and those are funny. I thought Lisa, Lisa Raggio's stories are particularly funny. Uh, she's the one that, that writes about the uh, being so... Uh, wanting to give up or turn in her equity card, coming to me, telling me she can't do it, and so forth. Uh, the the thing that becomes that became extremely rewarding was realizing that you had actually made a difference in people's lives because it's just not something you think about, and uh, and the fact that people saw it that way became very moving and touching to me. Um, and uh, and there are a lot of things, quite frankly, that we actually took out just because it seemed like they were being too, too complimentary. Um, and it just, it, it seemed like it was serving one of the authors too well. And so, uh, so we just cut some of that stuff, but it was, uh, it was very nice to see uh, because we all are remarkably close and because I'm the one that probably knows all of these people the best. 
because of having worked with all of them as a director. Um, it uh, it was fantastic to be pulled back in together with them. It's funny though, uh, Charles, as it is, as you as I look at this, the because right now it seems like Greece just happened because I've been working on this book. But there were decades where I barely thought about Greece. You know, I was doing saying other things that maybe I'd pass a poster and and smile or something, but I wasn't thinking about Greece. And now it seems like Greece just happened last year, you know, uh, the tours just closed down. We just had our longest running show in history, you know, two years ago. And of course that's now, <laughs> that's now that longest running show would be something like, uh, you know, 40, 42 years ago. So it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. So uh, anyway, that's how that happened. Uh, and, uh, and it's, uh, I take great, I take great pleasure. I take great pleasure in, in, in this, this, this one is no doubt the last part of my uh, creative, creative output. Um, it's the only time, and it started with that documentary that I made on the flying trapeze. It's the only time I have generated things myself. Everything else has come to me. I've been, again, we talked about it, been very lucky in that people have come to me with projects that I liked or whatever. I think I had to be ready for them. But those projects, the documentary became a totally personal passion project. And the same thing's true of this book. So as much as anything, I am just so thrilled that we followed it through, that we kept going until it was done. Because so many of these things, and a lot of the people, by the way, that contributed stories thought that would never happen because they know how complicated these things get. And they just assumed it would probably burn out. But uh, we didn't let that happen. You know, and here it is. So it'll be permanent, just like the documentary is permanent, and that's a great thing. So, and then the very last question I'd love to ask is: With such a great career in the theater, what advice would you give to somebody just starting out as a director? You just have to keep moving. Uh, you know, I, anybody's gonna. I think all of us all of us working in creative arts, you're always gonna have self-doubts, you're gonna have confidence, you're gonna swing wildly back and forth. But if you just keep moving forward without, without letting anything either deter you or necessarily anything totally spur you forward. I just think it's literally, I mean, it's such a cliche, but it's one step in front of another. You do not know what's going to lead to the next thing. But you do have to get in and do it. So people who say they want to be an actor, but won't go do small productions or won't do something where they go learn something in an acting class or directors that won't find opportunities to do it. Or if you want to get into television, if you won't go become a production assistant, nobody is going to arrive full blown, especially in the theater. Uh, they're not going to be hired. But but it, they do accumulate. It's it's and I take I take pride in in my life in that I again I had no great expectations uh, of what was going to happen. I just knew that this is what I liked doing, so I just kept taking opportunities as they kept uh, coming up. Now, granted, I had an incredibly lucky opportunity there in the beginning, but the same thing was true as I moved toward film. I mean, you just keep moving, and like I got the movie of Night Mother, and that made uh, Ed Zwick, who was producing 30-something, ask me to come do something of his. Work begets work. 
uh, and action begets action. Sitting at home contemplating will get you nothing. Uh, you have to get out into the arena and start uh, start trying to, to expose yourself. And I also think a lot of people find out it's not for them. And that's completely legitimate. I mean, I think we all have shifted gears a, a zillion times. Curiosity is the most important thing we have, I think, people working in the arts. Curiosity to find out something new or to try something new. And I think that's what you need to, to keep developing. Uh, otherwise, it kind of falls in on itself. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been, oh, it's been great fun. You're, you're, you're a great interviewer and your, oh, your, your interests are wide and free ranging, which I really appreciate. So thank you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I'm joined for the second part of my celebration of the 50th anniversary of Greece by its producer, Ken Waisman. In addition to Greece, Ken Waisman's other Broadway producing credits include Over Here, Torch Song Trilogy, Agnes of God, The Octet Bridge Club, Street Corner Symphony, and And Miss Reardon Drinks a Little. He was also half of Waisman and Buckley Associates, a general management company responsible for Carrie, Asino Mali, and other shows. His off-Broadway producing credits include Today I Am a Fountain Pen and Fortune and Men's Eyes, directed by Sal Minio. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.